Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Hello, my name is Ali Safar. I'm an interventional cardiologist from Genesis Care Cardiology in Melbourne, Australia. Um, my topic today is trying to navigate the issue of combination therapy of antithrombotics and antiplatelets needed in patients requiring both interventions or both treatments. Um, and it's how to balance the risk between thrombosis and um, bleeding in this special cohort of patients. These are my disclosures, I don't have any. So as way of introduction, uh, as you all know, some patients with coronary artery disease um, have indications for both anticoagulation and antiplatelet therapy. Uh, most common indications for antithrombosis, as you know, would be atrial fibrillation, thromboembolism, mechanical cardiac valves. Indications for antiplatelets, um, whether a single or dual antiplatelet therapy, would usually be stable coronary artery disease, where we would normally use a single antiplatelet agent like aspirin, or following acute coronary syndrome, where we would normally use a combination dual antiplatelet therapy of aspirin and clopidogrel or aspirin and tarcaglor, um, which we also need to use following stent insertion. Now, individuals who require both therapies would represent a clinical challenge for all clinicians, given the risk of bleeding when you require both antiplatelet and antithrombotic therapy. Balancing that risk is crucial to make sure that you deliver the best outcome for your patients. Just to understand the scale of the problem um, in Australia, the data are a little bit outdated here, uh, going back to 2017. AF prevalence is close to 500,000 patients in Australia, that's 2% of the population. And we estimate that there's an additional 100,000 patients roaming the streets without being diagnosed with AF. And it is estimated that in the next 30 years, we will be more than 600,000 patients of atrial fibrillation in Australia. AF patients have a five times higher risk of stroke, 17.5% higher risk of stroke severity, and up to 90% higher overall mortality. Now, with the coronary artery disease in Australia, we know that in 2015, more than 620,000 Australians, that's about 3% of Australians, self-reported having coronary artery disease. It's the single leading cause of mortality in Australia. We had more than 18,000 deaths, that's 12% of all deaths, uh, in 2017, which is almost 51 deaths a day. We have more, for, more than 400,000 Australians having had a heart attack at some point in their life. About 57,000 myocardial infarctions per year, that's an, a myocardial infarction every 10 minutes. And 21 Australians died from a heart attack each day in 2017. Now the overlap, uh, and I'm here talking about AF being the highest proportion of, of patients requiring uh, antithrombotic therapy, it's about 5 to 10% of elective PCI cases already on anticoagulation, mostly for AF. And the need for dual antiplatelet therapy, as discussed earlier, is essential in these patients. For prevention of ischemic events when it comes to the heart, in other words, recurrence of a heart attack or stent thrombosis, and we need the anticoagulation to continue their prevention in terms of stroke. 
Obviously, the combination carries a higher risk of bleeding, and a balanced approach is definitely needed. Now, up until recently, we were uh, led to believe that triple therapy is the standard of care for one to three months at least, and then to downgrade into a dual therapy. Yet more recent data from 2019 onwards, especially with the new advances in stent technology, have become more compelling to suggest that we can shorten this duration quite significantly. Now, in terms of options, and I'll come to the details now of what do we choose as cardiologists in this cohort of patients, the question is, do we use dual therapy or triple therapy, and for how long? And do we use warfarin or one of the newer anticoagulant agents, i.e. Prodexa, Xeralto, or Eliquis? And in terms of antiplatelets with the P2Y12 inhibitors, what do we choose? Do we choose clopidogrel or tacagrelor? And how to balance those risks? Remembering, not all patients requiring stenting are the same. Many patients, their procedures are very straightforward, uncomplicated, and carries very low risk of stent thrombosis. On the other hand, we have complex patients requiring multivessel stenting, bifurcational stenting, left main stenting, instant restenosis, or history of stent thrombosis. And this is a particularly high risk group of patients. Now, where is the evidence? This goes back to 2013, quite outdated, but I put it there just for historic reasons. The worst study, it had five patient, 500 patients, 573 patients. It was an open label. It was back in the era where we had no new anticoagulants. It was only warfarin. It only included stable angina patients. It did not have acute coronary syndromes. And the duration of therapy back then was dual antiplatelet therapy for 12 months if it was a drug-leading stent, and for one month if it was a bare metal stent. Now, we know bare metal stents are pretty much part of history in most of um, the developed world, purely because the evidence for drug-leading stents with the newer generation um, is far more beneficial for patients compared to bare metal stents. And the duration of antiplatelet therapy with the newer generation drug-leading stents is much shorter. Back to the study, it showed significantly higher bleeding risk when triple therapy was used, which is not surprising. Moving to the newer era of non vitamin K oral anticoagulant agents, referred to as NOACs. We have three pivotal trials assessing each of the three available NOACs in Australia. The Pioneer AF-PCI assessing Rivaroxaban or Xeralto, the Redual PCI assessing Dabigatran or Prodaxa, and the Augustus assessing Apixaban or the Eliquis. We'll start with the Pioneer AF-PCI, which assessed Rivaroxaban. This study included just over 2,000 patients of non-valvular AF requiring PCI. It was a three-arms randomization, looking at using reduced-dose Xeralto of 15 mg daily plus a P2Y12 inhibitor, i.e. clopidogrel or tacagrelor, for 12 months. The second arm was a low-dose Xeralto of 2.5 mg twice a day plus a dual antiplatelet therapy for 12 months, that is aspirin and a P2Y12 inhibitor. The third arm was warfarin using dual antiplatelet therapy for 12 months. And it was quite clear that there was less bleeding in the two Xeralto arms compared to warfarin. And there was no difference in the ischemic outcomes, yet the trial was underpowered to detect this outcome. 
And there were some concerns regarding the low-dose Xeralto usage for stroke prevention. And the reason for that is when Xeralto was first um, assessed, there were two doses used for stroke prevention, the 20 milligrams and 15 milligrams. Hence, the 2.5 milligrams BD was never assessed properly and was never proven for that reason. The next trial is the redual PCI assessing Pradaxa. There was a slightly larger trial, 2,725 patients of non-valvular AF requiring PCI. It was two arms only, a triple therapy using warfarin, aspirin, and P2Y12 inhibitor um, for one to three months, or dual therapy using Pradaxa at a normal dose of 150 mg BD or reduced dose of 110 mg BD, depending on the usual indications plus a P2Y12 inhibitor, once again, either clopidogrel or tacagrel. The results were, not surprisingly, similar. So both Prodexa groups had significantly lower bleeding risk compared to warfarin. And the dual therapy was not inferior uh, to triple therapy in terms of thromboembolic events. The third trial, the Augustus trial, that was presented in 2019, a much larger trial, almost double the size at 4,614 patients. It was also more comprehensive. It was a two by two factorial design. And I'll talk about this first and then go back to the other slide. So all patients used a P2Y12 inhibitor, mostly clopidogrel. Half of the patients were given apixaban and the other half were given warfarin. And for each of these arms, it was subdivided into taking either a placebo or an aspirin, hence the two by two factorial design. So the findings were also very similar to the previous two trials. There was lower bleeding or death compared to warfarin using apixaban. And in both arms, the addition of aspirin resulted in higher bleeding risk. However, there was some trend, yet not statistically significant, towards a more stent thrombosis in the placebo arm. You cannot draw any conclusions from that, and further trials were needed to try and see if aspirin was definitely needed. Now, how do we assess the thrombotic risks in patients following PCI? I've listed down there the higher risk groups. So you could see those who had recent acute coronary syndrome or recent stroke would be at higher risk of thrombosis. Those who had complicated multivessel intervention, particularly in diabetes patients. Suboptimal results at the time of PCI if you had suboptimal stent implantation. The need to prematurely stop antithrombotic therapy, mostly in patients with bleeding complications that happen after stenting. Those above the age of 65, those who had history of stent thrombosis, and those with chronic kidney disease. Put another way, patients with st stable disease, simple, straightforward procedure with stent implantation, no other risk factors, they would normally represent a very low thrombotic risk. Bleeding risk, on the other hand, is assessed by the HasBled scoring system, most of you would be familiar with. It's in the right bottom corner there. If you score more than three of those scores, then you'd be considered a high risk of bleeding. The most important ones that we encounter in, clin in clinical practice include age, above the age of 65, prior history of bleeding, history of hypertension. Keep in mind that the HasBled score has been well established in the usage of antithrombotics, but not antiplatelets. Now, how do we balance the risk in terms of bleeding and thrombosis? Experts have divided patients into four broad groups to try and decide 
on the duration and the type of anticoagulation required for those patients. The first group is those with low thrombosis and low bleeding risk, which is technically the easier group to deal with. The current recommendation is to use triple therapy, that is dual antiplatelet therapy and an anticoagulant, for about a week to four weeks, depends on the clinician, clinician's choice, and then to be followed by a NAWAC and clopidogrel for 12 months. The second group is the low thrombotic risk and high bleeding risk. Triple therapy for one week or less. One week or less means patients can potentially stop aspirin upon discharge. That could be day three, day four, day five. This is followed by a NAWAC and a clopidogrel for six to 12 months. Although the American College of Cardiology recommends three months, then NAWAC alone. Personally, and many of my colleagues would feel a little bit uncomfortable continuing for three months only, and we would normally continue six to 12 months. The third group is the high thrombotic risk and low bleeding risk. Triple therapy for one month is very reasonable, sometimes even longer. As you, as you can see, they're low bleeding risk, so sometimes if the procedure is quite complicated, some of us would continue for slightly longer than three months. Then you'd continue NAWAC and clopidogrel for the long term. The fourth group is the most challenging one, and quite often the decision is individualized because this is where you have a high thrombotic and a high bleeding risk. Once again, the consensus is to use triple therapy for about one month, clearly balancing that risk quite carefully, and then to continue NAWAC and a clopidogrel for six months, then NAWAC alone. Now, what do we do beyond 12 months? The FI trial argues for NAWAC monotherapy for all patients. But based on a recent meta-analysis in 2019, most experts agree that either NAWAC monotherapy or a NAWAC plus a single antiplatelet agent, either aspirin or clopidogrel, is very reasonable and reasonably safe as well. Having said that, this needs always to be re-evaluated should there be any bleeding or thrombotic event. Now, how about using dual antiplatelet therapy alone for one month post-discharge? This has been a practice for some time where clinicians decided to stop anticoagulation and to give antiplatelets, dual antiplatelet therapy for about a month to try and mitigate the risk of bleeding and then beyond the month to switch back to an anticoagulant along with an antiplatelet. This was looked into with the active W trial, and there were so many observational trials as well. Obviously, each one of them would have its own limitations. But in the aggregate, these studies suggest that major adverse cardiovascular outcomes may be worse in patients deprived from the use of NAWAC to prevent strokes from happening. And therefore, this should not be your practice anymore. Now, in terms of the choice of anticoagulants and antiplatelets, as you could see from all trials presented, all NAWACs would be better off for patients compared to warfarin in terms of bleeding risk. And I would therefore encourage all of you to use those new anticoagulant agents over the usage of warfarin when appropriate. Obviously, there will be some patients who cannot use NAWACs, and namely, these would be the ones with mechanical cardiac vas and those with advanced renal failure. And I'll talk about this later on in the slides. 
If warfarin is needed for those indications, we should aim to keep the INR between 2.0 and 2.5 while using a single or a dual antiplatelet approach as well. Clopidogrel is preferred as a P2Y12 inhibitor over Takeglo in the long-term usage because it's less potent and the bleeding risk is less. Plus, Clopidogrel was the mostly used P2Y12 inhibitor in those trials I mentioned earlier. Admittedly, acute coronary syndrome patients, there is good evidence that Takeglo is better than Clopidogrel. At the current practices, once the patient is stabilized during their initial hospitalization, and prior to discharge, most clinicians would switch them from Takeglor to Clopidogrel when NOAC is required. In high-risk PCI patients, it is recommended to consider your decision of switching to Clopidogrel based on their thrombotic risk. All of these patients requiring triple therapy or even dual therapy, it is recommended to uh, provide them with gastrointestinal protection with proton pump inhibitors. Anticoagulation in patients with renal impairment is a hotly debated issue, and we do need to consider a few points in here. The first point is data about safety and efficacy of NOACs in chronic kidney disease are limited, but there are a few studies in progress that will hopefully provide evidence of either superiority or inferiority in this cohort of patients of the usage of NOACs over warfarin. At present, NOACs are preferred over warfarin in patients with stage 1 to 3 chronic kidney disease, which we used to call mild to moderate chronic kidney disease. It can be considered an advanced chronic kidney disease with careful monitoring as well. Dabigatran and rivaroxaban need to be used at their reduced dosage when it comes to chronic renal impairment, while apixaban can be used in the standard dose. There are certain criteria where epixaban has to be dose has to be reduced. As you'd be aware, if you have a patient with an age of above 80, body weight of less than 60, and serum creatinine of more than 133 micromole per liter, you'd have to reduce the dose to 2.5 milligrams BD. With Prodexa, you'd have to reduce the dose to 110 milligrams BD for patients above the age of 75 or those who have creatinine clearance of less than 50 mil per minute. For rivaroxaban, you'd have to reduce the dose to 15 milligram a day when you have a creatinine clearance of less than 50 mil per minute. In stage four chronic kidney disease, apixaban and rivaroxaban might be used with caution in reduced doses where Prodexa is completely contraindicated. European recommendations contraindicate the usage of all NAOACs in patients with EGFR less than 15 mL per minute or on hemodialysis, whereas the US FDA allows the usage of apixaban in this, in this group of patients. Hence, NAOACs are gradually replacing warfarin in the prevention of thromboembolic events in patients with chronic kidney disease due to better safety profile and comparable efficacy. However, Treating physicians should be aware of the high risk of bleeding in the chronic kidney disease patients, uh, regardless of the choice of their antiplatelets or antithrombotic therapy. And the HASBED score has to be always used to try and assess that risk of bleeding. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi, 
and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.